folks who had engaged in God's Word more than four times per week. Um, ideally, I would encourage you to be in the Word every single day, but recognize, congregation, that God's Word does have a benefit in our lives, and I certainly want to encourage that, and that's why I had chosen this text. Inside that booklet that our pastor had uh, put together, he gave us several questions to reflect on as we read. And so what I hope to do tonight, congregation, is to illustrate a little bit of what that looks like in a daily Bible reading plan. And so you've likely already read Genesis 29 today, and you're probably planning to read Genesis 30 tomorrow. So hopefully this puts you on track and gives you some things to think about, talk about. But my hope would be is that each family has more meaningful and uh, interaction with God's Word on a regular basis. Having said that, let's go to God's Word, and I'm going to begin our reading in Genesis chapter 29, beginning at verse 31. Genesis 29, verse 31, hear God's Word and receive it with a believing heart. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, He opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, Give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel and he said, Am I in the place of God, who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, Here is my servant Bilhah. Go into her, so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me. And has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, With mighty wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son, and Leah said, Good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son, and Leah said, Happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, 
then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come in to me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night, and God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages, because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me, because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterward, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, may the Lord add to me another son. There ends the reading of God's word. May he also add his blessing to it. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, how is it that we make sense out of this and say, what in the world does this have to do with our lives today? Well, as you note in the upper right-hand corner of your notes, I've listed the five questions that Pastor Rossi has given us to think about, and these are excellent questions. They're general enough to really apply to any passage, but specific enough in order for us to grow and develop. And so I want us to think about this. The first question that he lays out here, what is the main idea of the passage? Now, you're not going to know the main idea of the passage until you start to dig into some of the details. Who are the people? What are they about? What's going on here? But that's really what the title of the sermon is about. And that is, whose family are you building? This sermon is about family building, and you'll recognize that as you think about the context of what came before and what comes after, and, and I'll try to tie these things together at the end. But for now, let's, let's begin to look at these names. Very interesting family. What I would call a, defunct, a dysfunctional family. And I don't know about you, congregation, but if we take an honest look at our own families, we all struggle with dysfunction. There are relationships that have friction in them, and we have that here. In one sense, you find in the Bible honest families, families that we uh, can relate to. And so we're going to see some of that tonight here. When we look at this story, the, the children's names tell a story of brokenness of brokenness. And if we would tell our own stories, they would look awfully broken. Some of you perhaps have seen the news, uh, the New Year's postcard that our family put out, and we probably put our best foot forward, and we didn't tell you all the nitty-gritties of our life. Um, but we do the same thing, right? When you send out your annual letters, you give us a little few, uh, things of the ups and downs, but do we really get down to the nitty-gritty and say, here's really where we struggled? Well, Scripture's pretty honest about this family. Notice, first of all, uh, in this story of brokenness, we learn certain things about God. All right, you notice that in the second question, what is God teaching me about Himself? And what we learn here in this first segment is God soothes the hurts of hatred, God soothes the hurts of hatred. It is mentioned twice in this first main paragraph that Leah was hated. You notice that in verse 31 it says, When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, 
And then um, after the birth of the second son, in, in verse 33, she said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated. Notice what we've done. We picked out some key words that are repeated. What is going on here? God is dealing with a mother, a wife, who is hated within her own family. I don't know what your situation is or what your setting is, but I suspect that there's a time in your life, maybe even now, where you can say, you know what, there are some people in my life who don't like me, and it makes life hard and difficult. Well, there are some lessons here that we can certainly learn. Well, what did God do here? How did God soothe Leah's hurts? Well, first of all, she, he gave her a son. And you notice, she names him Reuben, and I've divided that name for you. Ru is the word that means look or see, and Ben, you recognize that as son. And it really means look, a son. And notice who she gives the credit to. She says, because the Lord has looked. See that? There's the word Ru. Because the Lord has rued upon my affliction, for now my, uh, uh, for now my husband will love me. There are two things going on in Leah's life, you see. On the one hand, she recognizes God's hand in her life, but what she really wants, and if you look at the heart desire of Leah, she really wants her husband to love her. Now, is that a wrong desire? No. Any wife ought to expect for and hope for that her husband would love her. But in this case, Jacob loves Rachel much more. Leah was, in a sense, brought into this marriage in a less than romantic way, if you remember the history. And so she has her first son. The second son, she names Simeon, Shimeon. And it corresponds with, if you look in verse 33, it responds with the word heard. Notice the explanation she gives. She says, because the Lord has heard. And what I've done in my Bible, just to see it more clearly, is I circled the word heard, and I drew a line to the name Simeon, because Simeon is another word or another way of saying heard. It's the same word. You would hear it together in the Hebrew language. But again, she gives God the credit. She says, he has given me this son. In other words, Simeon means he heard, God heard. What else is God doing? Well, look at the next son, Levi. Levi corresponds with the phrase just above it. She says, now this time my husband will be attached. What does Levi mean? It means attached. I'll come back to that in just a moment, but again, you see what she's longing for. Here's a lonely wife in a marriage where she is abandoned, and she wants the love of her husband. And then there's a fourth son, a fourth son, and she explains it this way. Verse 35, she says, this time I will praise. The name Judah means praise, so if you want to circle the word praise and draw a line to Judah... Again, same root word. You would hear it very clearly in the Scriptures. Now, what do we learn here about God? That's the second question there you see up in your upper, upper right-hand corner. What we learn about God is that God is a God who sees us. God is a God who hears us. And God is a God who is worthy of praise. That's how Leah sees God. 
She is learning things about God, and as Leah makes these statements about God, we as Bible readers can say, that's what I learn about God. But what about question three? What is God teaching me about myself? Well, oftentimes, we learn about ourselves by looking at the human condition in the text. What's Leah's situation? And it it would seem that we could go two directions with this. The most obvious, Leah is hated. Are you in a situation where you are being hated by somebody, by others, maybe not on a continuous basis, but every now and then people disrespect you. They, They treat you in a way that you feel that you didn't deserve. There you relate to yourself. But it could be that you're the one who is being the hater. Maybe you're the one who hates, and we'll say more about that in just a little bit. But the fourth question is, what do we learn here about Jesus? And you say, well, (laughs) the text doesn't say anything about Jesus. Let me have us look just a little bit ahead. Look at the word Levi. Levi. What does it mean? Attached. What's going to become of Levi in the next book of the Bible? When you get to the book of Exodus in just a few more uh, chapters, the, the Levites, the family of the Levites, are going to be the priest, and it's going to be the priest through whom and through which God communicates with His people. It's the priests who come into the Holy of Holies. It's the priests who offer the sacrifices, and it's the priests who remind us that God attaches himself through the priesthood to his people. How does God attach himself to us? He attaches himself through Jesus Christ. We call that union with Christ. But also look at the name Judah. Judah is the name praise. This is the tribe through whom Jesus eventually is going to be born. And so it's not altogether spelled out here, but those of you who have read on and have read the rest of the story, you know what comes of Judah. And so we already have these little glimmerings of Jesus. But let's take a look at question five before we move on, and that is, how should I respond to this teaching? Think of it this way. Put yourself in Leah's sandals, so to speak. You cannot choose how other people will treat you. You can't choose that. But what can you choose? What do you have the power over? To choose how you will respond to them. In these first four births, they seem to be pretty much in rapid succession here. During these four births, we don't hear of any pushback from Leah, but we have her had her eyes set on God. She seems to be satisfied with what God is giving to her. So how do we respond? We respond by being content with what God provides. Because nobody is always going to treat you every time the way that you deserve to be treated. What can we do? Lean on God. So God is the one who soothes the hurts of hatred. But secondly, let us notice something about envy. Envy wrecks relationships. Envy wrecks relationships. Here we go on to Rachel. Let's take a look at Rachel. Rachel is the one who reacts with envy. 
Again, if you look here at chapter 30, verse 1, it says, Then Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children. Okay, that's the facts. But how does she respond? And I want you to notice three things that we're going to notice about Rachel. Uh, And here's a little thing that you can do around your dinner table when you come to a passage. Uh, And I'm giving you a number of things. You might take only five or ten minutes with your family and look at just one area. But one thing you can do is to take a look at a character analysis. What is their what is their character? What's the study here? Begin with the heart. What is going on in Rachel's heart? It says that she envied her sister. The fact is is that Rachel is barren and doesn't have any children, but her response to her barrenness and her response to her sister's productivity is Leah, I hate you. Because you are having children, and I am not. Leah, I want what you have, and because I can't have what you have, I'm going to hate you for having what you do have. You see how envy, in a sense, turns things upside down. Envy turns inside, and you see what's going on in Rachel's heart. Now, when she reacts that way, That's what's in her heart, but notice how it comes out in what she says. Notice the heart governs what comes out of the mouth, and the heart governs what we do with our hands. Look at what she says at the end of verse 1. She says to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Now, is it wrong for Rachel to desire to have a child? No. What is wrong about Rachel's desire is she has taken that desire for a child and she has put it as the ultimate thing that will make her happy. And what she has done is she has put her desire for a child and she has turned it into idolatry because she says, if I don't get this, then life is no longer worth living. This is all that matters to me. So you see what Rachel has done. She has created an idol in her heart, and Rachel is now guilty of idolatry. It's not just envy, it is idolatry. Well, you see how Jacob responds. Jacob responds with anger, and now you have this tiff going on, and he says, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said to him, here is my servant Bilhah, and so He has a child by Bilhah. So her sinful envy, her idolatrous envy, leads to sinful activity and brings now Bilhah into their marriage and adds to his already unlawful polygamy. You see how sin develops and grows, but it begins with envy. Notice what Rachel names her children. First of all, we come to the child Dan. And if you go to verse 6, it says, Then Rachel said, God has judged me. That's what Dan means, judge. God has judged me and has, has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore, she, she called his name Judge. Now, 
He judged me, not in the sense that he judged me wrong, but Rachel sees it this way. Rachel is saying, God has judged in my favor. He has vindicated me. In what sense? What needs to be judged? Who, Who needs to be evaluated? Well, that comes out with the name of the second child that Bilhah has for Rachel. If you go down to verse 8, then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled. Those are the two words that I would circle because they are the ones that correspond with Naphtali, wrestling, wrestling. You see, Rachel has seen this childbearing as a competition. And the score right now is four to none. Or if we count Bilhah, it's four to one. And she wants to gain another one. And she says, now I've gained another. And now I am wrestling with my sister. You see what envy does? It wrecks relationships. Envy means I cannot value who you are. I cannot value what you have. I cannot value what you have accomplished because my heart says I hate you for being ahead of me. It turns things into a competition. Well, what do we learn here? Well, if we try to summarize it in terms of question number one, what's the main idea? The main idea, you see, is that Rachel is playing God. Rachel has taken God's role. You see it in the way that she accuses Jacob. You don't give me a child, I'll die. And Jacob says, I'm not in the place of God. You see it in the way in which she wrongfully gives Bilhah to her husband in order to have a child. She is wanting to control what she cannot control. And even in the naming of her children, Dan and Naphtali, she says, I'm in a, I'm in a competition with my sister. Rachel, in a sense, is playing the role of God. Well, what do we learn about God in this passage? What's clear is that God is the one who controls the womb. It is not Jacob. It is not Rachel. It's not even Leah. God is the one who is in control. What do we learn about ourselves here? We see that discontentment comes from elevating my desires, hating others instead of being grateful. Do you see this pattern in your own life, either you towards somebody else or somebody else toward you? Do you see how envy wrecks a relationship? And here again, what do I learn about Jesus? One of the most common ways in which you will recognize Jesus in the Scriptures, especially in the Old Testament, is where is the brokenness that requires God's grace? Rachel is broken at a heart level. She is dealing with envy. Are you dealing with the kind of envy that Rachel is dealing with? Then you need Jesus, and so do I. I need Jesus to take away that envy in order that I might respond in a different way. And so how should I respond? That's question number five, right? How do I respond? Well, confess your sin of envy. Lay it before God. Believe that in Jesus Christ, He forgives that sin. And then, of course, repent. And what does that mean? That means put away envy, and instead of hating, be thankful. That would have been the the right response for Rachel to say, Leah, I'm so glad for you. I also long to have children, and in a sense, it makes it more painful, but I'm glad for you. That would be a way of repentance. How do we respond? 
recently read in a book by Ken Sandy, Resolving Everyday Conflict, he says this, even if I am only 2% responsible for the conflict, I am 100% responsible for my 2%. Right? In this case, Rachel is one who has really provoked things. But how do you respond? Let's take a look at Leah's reaction. So, Rachel reacts with envy. Leah reacts to Rachel. And now we have this downward spiral, don't we? Leah now returns in kind. And what does she do? She does the same thing with her maidservant and gives Zilpah to uh, her husband. And we read in verse 11. And Leah said, good fortune has come. And that's the word you want to circle. Good fortune has come. Good fortune. So she called his name Gad. Gad means good fortune. If you're using a different version of the Bible, it might also have a translation of troop. A troop comes. All right? There's some debate there as to which translation should be used. But again, the idea is that Leah has now entered into the fray. And so Gad means good fortune. Then it says she has a second one, and in verse 13, Leah said, happy, you want to circle the word happy, am I? For women have called me happy, circle happy a second time. So she called his name happy, or Asher. Now what is to happen here? The turn of events is that now both Leah and Rachel are, are in this conflict together. Leah, though she had been trusting in God before, now has gone in the direction of Rachel's way of doing things, and she responds to Rachel in the same way that Rachel responded to Leah, and so Rachel, in a sense, has continued her ripple effect. That's not to excuse Leah for the way that she responds, but do you see how one sin oftentimes leads to another? Well, what do we learn about God What we're going to learn about God in just a little bit is that God even uses broken people who are in these kind of conflicts such as Leah and Rachel. I'll say more about that in just a little bit. But what do we learn about self? What we learn here about the natural inclination of human beings is to return evil with evil. It is to respond in the way that people have treated me. And that's exactly what Leah does. Do you see yourself in that, that you have sometimes responded to other people? They said something nasty to you, and you said something nasty back. They gave you the cold shoulder. You gave them the cold shoulder back. They ignored you, so you ignored them. Is that going on in your family? Is it going on in your marriage? Is it going on in your business? We learn something about human nature here, don't we? Well, what do we learn here about Jesus? Again, we see the need for our cleansing. We see the need. We see the need for us to be set free from that bitter envy and then responding to those who have hated us with the way that they have treated us. And actually, here's where I intended to give the, the quote from Ken Sandy about we are 100% responsible for my 2%. Right? Rachel's the one who started it. Rachel is the one who stirred the pot. 
And so if we were to divide it up, perhaps Rachel is more responsible for the 98% and Leah is responsible for the 2%. But guess what? Leah, who has contributed 2% to the conflict, she is 100% responsible for the 2%. You see, we can't always change how other people will treat us, but we can choose how we will respond to them, even though the majority of what they have done to us has been wrong. If it's our 2%, What are you doing about your 2%? Are you taking full responsibility and responding in a right way? Well, let's go to the third thing here, and that is God hears. God hears our prayers. We now come to this last section here. You notice the the structure of the text here. It's divided up according to, to the bearing of children. You first have Leah. Then you have Rachel's response with her, uh, with her maidservant, Bilhah. Then you have Leah's response with her maidservant, Zilpah. And now you have Leah again, and then Rachel. In one sense, we have the elements of a story, don't we? The story begins with a certain setting, and we are told at the very beginning of the story that, that Leah began to have children, but Rachel was barren. That's the conflict of the story. And then from the conflict, there's this rising action. How is this going to turn out? And as we see the tension building, Leah has kids. Rachel has kids through Bilhah. Leah has kids through Zilpah. How is this going to turn out? This going back and forth, back and forth. What's the climax here? Well, in a sense, we come to the climax here with these last two segments. God hears our prayers. First of all, notice that God listens to Leah. God listens to Leah. Drop down to verse 14. You have this, the days of the wheat harvest, and of course, one of Leah's sons, Reuben, comes in with these mandrakes. Mandrakes uh, likely had had a, a sweet aroma to them, and they were used in romantic situations, and Rachel says, hey, give me some of those. But you see Leah's response. Verse 15, is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? In other words, Rachel, it's always you, you, you. You're always take, take, take. You took my husband, now you're going to take this too? Rachel says, all right. Tell you what, I'll trade you. You give me some of your son's mandrakes, I'll give you your husband for a night. And that's what happens. Well, notice this. In verse 16, notice what Leah says to her husband. You must come in to me, for I have hired. You'll want to circle the word hired hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night, and God listened. There it is. God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages. You want to circle the word wages? Because I have given, because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. Issachar is the same word that's translated here for hired, or for wages, and that's why I put both of those in there. Issachar means wages, or it means hire. Well, then she has another son. 
And she says in verse 20, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me. You'll want to circle the word honor because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name honor or Zebulun. That's what Zebulun means, honor. What I want you to notice here, congregation, is that it says that God listened to Leah. How did Leah respond to her barrenness? She, was, she had now stopped conceiving. What did she do? She turned to God and she acknowledged Him as the giver of life and she cries out to Him. That's what we take from this word, listen. But notice, you have the same thing with Rachel. If you go on to look at verse 19, excuse me, verse 22. Then God remembered Rachel. Now, does that mean that God had completely forgot about her? No, in the text of Scripture, when it says that God remembered, it means that God in His timing has now come back to give attention to Rachel. Notice what it says. Then God remembered Rachel and God listened. God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph saying, may the Lord add. You want to circle the word add. That's what Joseph means. May the Lord add to me another son. What Rachel does not know yet is that God will add to her another son, the son Benjamin. It's going to be the son by which she will die because it is in giving birth to that son that she will give up her life. We'll come to that, we'll come to that at a different time, but that's where this particular story ends. And so we have this story of these two sisters. In this section here about God hearing our prayer, how God listens to Leah, God listens to Rachel, what we see here at congregation in terms of question number one, what's the main idea here? What we see is that both Leah and Rachel come to a point in their lives where they submit themselves to God, they humble themselves, and they recognize that the fruit of the womb comes from God. And it appears that they at least recognize that to a certain degree. What do we learn here about God? That's question two. We learn that God has ordained prayer to accomplish His purposes. Both Leah and Rachel apparently were crying out to God, but it was in God's timing. God does not always give us what we ask for when we want it. And sometimes He doesn't uh, always give us even what we ask for because it may not be for His purposes or for our good. Question number three, what do we learn about ourselves? We learn here that only God, only God can satisfy our deepest longings. Leah had so much wanted the love and affection of her husband, and she thought that maybe she would get it through her children, and we sense that she never got it. Only God can satisfy her deepest longings. What did Rachel want? Rachel already had her husband. She wanted, she wanted children because that's what gave her a, a place and significance as a female in that society. But it was not until 10 sons had been born that finally Rachel received one. What do we learn? Only God can satisfy our deepest longings. What do we learn here about Jesus? 
What we learn here about Jesus is that Jesus is the one who opens the way into God's presence. How is it that we have access to God? How is it that, that, that Rachel and Leah could have access to God? It was because of God's grace. How has God's grace been known to us? It is through Jesus Christ that we too have access to God and we can come with the deepest hurts of our lives. And that leads us also then to how we should respond. What do we do with our deep hurts of life? We bring our heart desires to God. What is it that you are desiring so deeply that makes your life a little bit unhappy right now to say, if I were really honest with myself, I would say, this is what I want so much, I really can't be happy without it. Or another way to say it is, what are you complaining about? Take that to God instead of trying to play God. Well, that brings us back to what I think is the big idea of this chapter and this chunk here. The sermon title is, Whose Family Are You Building? And what we need to recognize here at the very bottom of your notes here is that God builds His family out of brokenness. God builds His family out of brokenness. These events might just seem part of a, a, a story, but I need to set it in the context now because if we step back away from this story, we begin to see something big that God is doing. Right now it seems to be a messy conflict, but there is something amazing that God is doing. You see, God is accomplishing His purposes despite the greediness and the selfishness and the brokenness of Jacob's family. Do you know how old Jacob is when he marries these gals? Jacob is 77 years old. Now, that may not mean anything to you, except that let's put this in the context of God's promise. God had promised to Abraham that he would be made into a great nation. But when Abraham dies at the age of 175, how big of a nation does he see at his deathbed? There are four people. There is Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and Esau. Four individuals. Jacob and Esau are 15 years old at the death of Abraham. Now, go from age 15, and now let's meet Jacob at age 77. How big is the nation grown? Not much. You still have Isaac and Rebekah, and Isaac is so old that he thinks he's about to die, so he needs to give his blessings to his sons, Esau and Jacob, and he intends to give them to Esau. And so you have two aging twins. They are now 77. We know that Esau married at age 40, so he's been married for 37 years. He probably has some kids, but that's all that there is for this nation. It's now about 170 years after the time that, that Abraham had received the promise. Where is this nation? How is this nation ever going to come? It's only going to come by God's grace. Well, you know how it happened. They married, right? Or, or uh, Jay, Isaac uh, was going to give the blessing, but 
Rebekah tricks him. And so now Rebekah needs to think of a way to get Jacob out of here to save his life and says, I'm unhappy with Esau's wives. Can we send Jacob away? Sends Jacob away. At age 77, he marries Leah. Wakes up the next morning and finds out it's not Rachel. And so after a week, he's given Rachel. And now within a week, he's got two wives with another seven years. Do you know what happens during those seven years? Eleven boys are born. You do the math. Eleven sons born in the space of seven years. If you notice this, it was when Joseph was born we didn't read quite this far, but if you look at verse, chapter 30, verse 25, as soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, send me away that I may go to my own home and country. In other words, my seven years are up. And it happened to correspond at about the time that Joseph was born. Seven years, 11 sons, they're ready to go. But do you see what God was doing? God was beginning to build that nation. They had waited so long to get, Abraham had waited so long to get Isaac. Isaac had waited so long to get Esau and Jacob. And now Jacob, 77, gets married. 84, begins to have kids. Age 91, he's finally got 11 kids. Is God building his family or not? Absolutely. It's out of this broken family that God was building a foundation for his nation. Congregation, do you see what God is doing in your life? Do you see what God is doing with the brokenness that you may experience? Do you see that despite our sinfulness, God forgives us through the blood of Jesus Christ in order that we might be incorporated into His family, into His plan, that we might be used to advance His kingdom? And you're right in the mess of it right now, perhaps, and so you can't see it. But if we could only back up, if we could only see it from the perspective of eternity and see, what in the world is God doing with my puny little life? You would be able to say, praise God for what He is doing. But that doesn't mean that we, just, we should live just haphazardly. No, what is it that we learn about ourselves what is it that we learn about God? What is it that we learn about Jesus? Well, in one sense, the main idea here is that God is accomplishing His purpose despite the greedy, selfish brokenness of Jacob's family. What is it that we learn about God? We learn that, that God is working out His plan despite human failure. In fact, He even implements human failure. The, the envy and the spite and the fight between Leah and Rachel. It seems such a, an ordinary thing, and yet God was using that to build a family. What do we learn here about ourselves? We learn that our life is part of a bigger plan, don't we? What do we learn here about Jesus? It's Jesus who guides us into God's plan by His Word and by His Spirit. It is through forgiveness that you and I are brought into the family of God. It is by humbling ourselves before God and looking to Him that He makes us all the more useful. So how should we respond? We ought to praise God for His plan. 
We ought to be content with where He has put us, the lot that He has given to us. And maybe your lot is not the lot that you really want, but this is the one that He has given to you. To say, God, this is where you have placed me. And that also then allows you to be thankful for what God is doing in the lives of others to build His kingdom through them. We are to confess our envy and our hatred trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we look at this dysfunctional family and to see how you used such brokenness, such sinfulness, such bitter envy and contention in a family to build them up to be something that you would use for the sake of your purposes, your plan, your glory. Father, may we be encouraged to know that you can make something out of our broken lives. Let us not continue in sin, but Father, may we recognize our own envy, where we have been bitterly jealous of others, where we have hated others because of their gifts and abilities. May you give us the ability to be thankful for what you have given to them and that that you are using them for the sake of your kingdom. Father in heaven, may you also give us contentment with our place in your plan for your kingdom, and may we make the most of the opportunities that you set before us. O Father in heaven, may you invigorate us in our Bible reading so that we would be more zealous, and, and may we read with greater understanding. May your spirit lead us. Lord, hear us for Jesus' sake. Amen.